Good morning. Let me add my welcome today. My name's Lloyd. I'm one of the pastors here. And let me say it's really um, quite moving to, one, hear us sing, but two, to see uh, faces, old faces, new faces, like brand new, almost straight out the womb faces as well. It's re- it really is a delight. We are glad um, to have many of you here, and we hope that as things open up, um, yeah, you'll bear with us um, as we seek to kind of get us um, all back together. It's, we recognize that there's lots of excitement, but there is some anxiety there, and we want to do that and bring that uh, before you and before uh, the Lord together. Um, it's really felt like summer this week, hasn't it? Um, I've not known anything like it before in my life, 38 degrees, uh, summer holidays. Uh, summer reminds us of summer holidays, um, and that reminds many of us of road trips. There's usually a lot of anticipation, isn't there? Excitement, and then you get in the car. It's hot, it's sweaty, there's not enough room, there's not enough air conditioning, and 10 minutes into the journey, there's that refrain, isn't there, that I've said a million times, are we there yet? It's a phrase that will be repeated many times before that journey ends, too many times. And we hear it, I think, um, in different ways from the Israelites in our passage today. They're on a journey. We've been going through Exodus uh, so far. Exodus means to, to leave. Uh, they're leaving um, slavery in the land that has oppressed them, and they're moving to freedom. And yet they still say, are we there yet? What's going on? So let's pray uh, as we begin together. Lord, we're grateful to be here. Thank you, Lord, that you speak. You speak in your word. Your spirit ministers to us and works in our hearts. We pray that he'd be our teacher this morning. Anything of me would fall to the side, but anything of you would be burned into our hearts. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we're going to see today that God provides enough. God provides enough. God provides enough even in the grumbling to start. God provides in the grumbling. Last week, after a a brief stop in Elam, where they had been, uh, where there were 12 springs, natural water was there. It didn't require the Israelites to to worry about their water anymore, um, but they began to travel through the desert, through Elam, it says in this this in verse 1. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day, on the second month, after they departed from the land of Egypt. A month and a half, they began to grumble to Moses and Aaron. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill us, to kill this whole assembly with hunger. What are you doing? They have weirdly distorted and delusional memories of Egypt, you'll agree. Very selective memories. They've gone all nostalgic. Um, Maybe the heat has got to them like it's got to us in this past week. We are like this, aren't we? We forget what it was like without Christ. We forget um, all the good that that God has done in our lives, and we we, we grumble. I do. They have been slaves. Uh, They've been forced to work their fingers to the bone. They've been crying out for God to save them, Now, after the greatest rescue that the world had ever seen at the hands of God, while they didn't really lift a finger, they were now convinced that they had been saved in order to die in the wilderness. They forgot and they were grumbling. They should have cried out to God, but they they cry out to Moses and Aaron. But instead of raining down fiery judgment, we see that God rains down something else. You see, 
Uh, you can get the people out of slavery quickly, but you can't get the slavery out of the people quickly. It took one day to get the Israelites out of Egypt, but it took 40 years to get Egypt out of the Israelites. And yet God is gracious and he's so patient. I would have rained down judgment. God rains down bread from heaven for them. Verse 4, behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. God provides for them, even in their grumbling. Despite their grumbling and complaining and forgetfulness, God provides food in the desert. He lays a table for them. God is gracious, even in their delusion. He gives them bread. We think of bread as something additional, optional, even decorative. But in most cultures, bread is essential. It is the meal. He's showing what kind of God he is. I wonder if you would remember, we didn't cover this in the past couple of weeks, but as Moses is at the front of the burning bush, he says, what shall I call you? What shall I tell the Israelites your name is? And God says, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. And so it's kind of a blank box name, you could say, that will be filled with the content of what we see in Exodus. What God, what is this kind of God like? He says, I am who I am. Who is he? And here we get some content to put in that box. What kind of God is this I am? This is the kind of God that he is. He provides. He provides for their needs, even when they grumble. God provides despite the grumbling and provides for their needs. He lays a feast for them in the wilderness and their plates overflow. They have manna, which is like coriander seed, white and tastes like wafers made from honey. Not bad. Uh, they call it manna because that's what it sounds like in Hebrew. So it's basically like, like, like us calling it, um, what is it? Or we have these uh, crisps in the UK called Watsits. That'd be what it'd be called. They ate Watsits for 40 years because that's what they first called it when they saw it. What is it? It's something new. It's something um, innovative. It's something clearly of God and miraculous laid down uh, before them. And it's the bread that God has given them to eat to gather each of them as much as you can eat. And they're given quail as well, a delicious kind of gamey meat that's easy to catch because they don't fly very high. God provides for all their needs. I'd have given them something really bland and not much of it as well. If it were me, that'll teach them for complaining. Tofu or um, crackers or just plain rice cakes or something like that. Um, I've had to give up, um, uh, I've had to change uh, my diet recently and um, I've eaten a lot of rice cakes, and they try and add flavors to them, um, tomato and basil, white cheddar, um, everything on even, like, what is this everything on? Um, but it still tastes like cardboard, right? <laughs> like, I'm grateful for it, but it still tastes like cardboard. I would have given them that for 40 years. But what's God like? Thankfully, nothing like me. He gives them meat and bread. He gives them meat and bread. Of course, we have a chain of restaurants, don't we, in BC and Alberta called Meat and Bread. Who's, who's eaten there? Some fans here. I wonder if they're named after this incident in the desert. I don't know, maybe, maybe not. Or simply because they sell meat and bread. It might, that might be why they're called Meat and Bread. Um, remember, next time you're there and you're eating, the graciousness of God. He gave them meat and bread to eat in the desert. God provides enough grace, even in their grumbling. Secondly, God provides enough in their receiving. God provides enough in their receiving. They were given very specific instructions on what to do with what they had been provided. 
He provides rules in the receiving. So verse 4 says this, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. And so God's people are given very specific instructions on what to do with what they've been provided. God gives them instructions that will cultivate something in their hearts that will enable them to trust in him for all their needs. Firstly, they were to gather a day's portion each day. Did you notice that? It was a receiving by picking up of daily food that God provided each day. It was daily bread, not weekly bread or monthly bread or yearly bread. Give us today our daily bread. God's provision is received by faith one day at a time. It will be picked up by them one day at a time. We sometimes wish, don't we, that um, we could eat more than a day's worth of food. When I go to an an all-you-can-eat buffet, I do try to eat several days' worth of food, but actually never works, right? Like, you actually get more hungry for the next meal because, like, your stomach is stretched or, or something. It's great in some ways, and this is part of, of God's working in, in our lives and in, in creation in, in us, that, that he doesn't make us like a car that, that, that we just fill with fuel for like a week or a month, and then we're done. There's something about eating, of taking, and of receiving where we're to trust in him. Even though we're in a, a, you know, we have a society where we, we, we refrigerate our food and we can keep it for, for, for months on end. We can buy it from Costco and pay um, rent for it in our houses. Um, we can receive it and we can keep it. And we don't trust in God. It's easy to kind of know when our pantries are, are full um, to, 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 to know that we have enough to eat, but that's not been what it's been like for many of, of the cultures in our time. For the Israelites... God's provision of this manner required them to trust in God. He provided today, and then tomorrow, and then again the next day. They had to trust in God one day at a time. They couldn't put their excess manna into a mutual fund to invest for the future. They had to do it one day at a time. And so it's a harder lesson for us to learn in many ways, but we need to learn it like they did. But it's daily bread, one day at a time. God wants to feed us daily bread. He always wants us to be dependent and, um, and reliant on the goodness and faithfulness of his provision. When I worry about the future, when I'm planning meticulously for the future, it's usually because I'm struggling with something in the present. I wonder what you're like with that. What would it look like for you to believe and to have faith for today? That actually God really only provides for today as he does here, and tomorrow is his and he wants us to trust him for today. Then in verse 19, it says this, and Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it till the morning. But they didn't listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. It was a hard lesson to learn. Daily bread, not weekly bread, not, not monthly, but daily bread, abundant for each day, but not more than that. The exception was the sixth and seventh day. While there was provision of daily bread, there was also the provision of weekly rest. They were to gather double the amount on the sixth day so that they wouldn't have to do it on the seventh day. You see, God provides for them not just a manna and quail in the desert, but rest. 
Isn't it funny that they struggle to rest? They've come from Egypt where they were forced to work. They were enslaved, right? They were told to make more and more stuff. Sounds like Western society, doesn't it? But they were told to make more and more stuff for for the God um, who was Pharaoh there. And now they're being invited to rest and still they struggle with it. Something has been formed in them in Egypt that needed to be reformed. Perhaps it was this, when work has become an idol, rest feels like a sin. I wonder if that's true for you. When work is or has become an idol, then rest kind of feels like like a sin. One of the ways we can trust God is our, our ability to rest. We rest because we can trust God to provide. Or to put it in the reverse, if we can't rest, perhaps it's because we can't trust God. We don't know how to trust God. We're trying to provide for ourselves in that moment. But daily bread and weekly rest were to form something in the stomachs and the bones of God's people. They were to remember this. The permanent reminder was this. A jar of manna was kept throughout the generations. God's daily provision that became monthly provision, that became yearly provision, that became decades of provision. That was God's tangible generational provision for them in their little jar to remember. How might you Trust in God for your daily bread today, your weekly rest, your remember forever jar. What do you need to look back on that reminds you of God's faithfulness to you? See, these are invitations to trust. God provides rules and enough reasons to trust in the receiving. So God provides enough grace in the grumbling. He provides rules and enough reasons to trust in the receiving. And finally, God provides also in the testing. God provides in the testing. Now, this story is is all well and good, right? It's all nice and neat, isn't it? But there's this kind of fundamental question. Why on earth are they in the desert? Yes, God had led them out of slavery, out of Egypt. He'd led them out of oppression, saved them. He'd led, led them with his presence as a fire and cloud. Yes, they headed to a promised land of milk and honey. Great. Why are they starving in the desert? They were wandering about in a desert, the same wilderness where little biological life can live, where human life struggles. What are they doing? Well, it's hard to get around this fact that God had led them to the wilderness. God had led them to the wilderness. It's striking that they are being led to these places where there's no food, no water, these difficult, dangerous, dehydrating places. And we can't hide from the fact that God led them there. It was part of his plan and the journey that he was leading them on. And so the question is why? We see in verse 4 this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a a day's portion every day that I may test them. Many of us don't like tests. We feel like they're designed, well, I do, like they're designed to humiliate us, to expose us, to prove that we're not good enough. But tests, when looked at from that perspective, when it decides whether you're in or out, whether you've passed or you've failed, I would run away from those tests. But there are also tests that help us to know what we don't know, help us to wrestle with um, the ways in which we need to grow. They can bring out the positive. Hitting a puck into a hockey goal can 
can train us. You just do it time and time again. Or a basketball, I see people in the park just playing by themselves, just shooting and shooting and shooting. But what if that's all that you did? It's only when you stick a goalie in front does it test you? Does it make you able to, I'm, talk, I'm pretending like I know here, I'm just making this up really. Um, only when you put a goalie in front of there are they going to be tested, right? Only when someone challenges you and actually jumps with you will you actually develop any skill that's of use in basketball or, or, or hockey. Test develop muscles that we would otherwise not have. God wanted to test them through the wilderness, through the thirst, through the hunger. God wanted them to know their own hearts their own cravings. God wanted to test them so they would come to know his heart for them. He wanted them to be refined in the fire so they would come out as gold. They would come to the end of themselves and finally realize that God is the one who's enough. God is enough. Years later, just before Moses dies, and in the book of Deuteronomy, um, and Deuteronomy and Exodus are linked uh, very closely in this way, after, just before he dies, after they've been through the wilderness for 40 years, he speaks to the children of Israel and reflects on the, the meaning of the wilderness wanderings. He says this in Deuteronomy 8, I think. I've got, not got this written down. Deuteronomy 8. And you shall gather, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. We know, don't we, that tests and trials, pain and suffering can go one of two ways. They can make people harder and more bitter, or they can make people softer and more tender than they were. They can make us better or bitter. How do we make sure that the tests in our lives don't lead to things in our hearts and in our lives that lead us to just be hard and bitter, but actually lead us to be better and more tender and more soft? I think we need some conviction through these tests. Interestingly, the word Jesus gives us in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, is the same word in the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible used here for testing. The word can be translated as test or temptation. And so it can mean, let the circumstances of our lives not be temptations to doubt you, but tests to trust you. Not temptations to kind of go harder against you and to resent you, but actually tests that we might grow in softness and in love and in trust of you. And so when tests come in our lives, and they do come, we know it, don't we? Will they be tests that bring more trust and tenderness and make us better? Or will they be temptations that bring more resentment and suspicion, making us bitter? Let me suggest this to us, to myself this morning. I believe that you and I need to resolve something in our hearts about the testing of God. We need to overcome a couple of temptations. The first one is this. The first temptation to overcome is this. To refuse to trust God's fatherly discipline as testing and good. That final verse from Deuteronomy was so important, wasn't it? Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. 
Derek has always already mentioned this, but it's hard to be a, a father, a good father. Jason will, will be knowing now here. The number of times I need to stop myself and think, why am I putting all my baggage on my child right now? Or why is their crying triggering so much in me right now? Earthly fathers are, are, and parents are imperfect. Let's recognize that. Let me admit that. But God isn't simply a bigger version of, of, of them or of me, thank God. They are pale, we are pale shadows of the perfect Heavenly Father. He won't give us stones when we ask for bread. Now, we know intellectually that there's a difference between a test from a slave owner and a parent, right? There's a difference between an invigilator or an examiner and um, a good father or a mother. But we're encouraged to know this in our heart. A good father, a good mother doesn't test a child in order to qualify the child. If the child fails, he or she won't cease to be a child. In fact, the more that child fails, the more the parent's heart actually goes out to them in love. There may be punishment at times, but it's punishment to grow and discipline rather than to exact tit-for-tat revenge on the kid. We learned this from David Attenborough on our planet on Netflix recently. There's a Philippine eagle. They're massive, and they live in the jungle uh, on top of the, one of the trees that are there. And the parents stop bringing food to their nest um, for after one year. The, the baby uh, Philippine eagle stays in their nest for a year. Now, they stop bringing food after a year, not to punish the poor eagle, but to encourage it to fly out of its nest for the first time, even or, or because it's a 70-foot drop to the jungle floor. They're not punishing the kid by not giving them food. It's actually to get them to spread its wings, to fly to the next tree and from there to the next tree and to figure out that this is how they're supposed to live. So the question for us is this, is God primarily a judgmental examiner or a life-giving, life-inviting father? Does he test us to trip us up or does he test us to grow us up? Does he test us to find a reason to chop us down or as a way for us to grow into mighty oaks? We must be moving to the sense in our hearts that his hand is good. Those things in our lives, they may decidedly be not good. They may be evil. They may be wrong. We need to call them out as the wrong that they are, the things that have happened to us that we mourn and that we grieve. We still don't know exactly what it meant. And yet, might we learn to trust God as, as Father, as good? In spite of those things, in spite of that trauma that's in our lives, perhaps. How might that shift in perspective affect what you're going through, struggling through, wrestling through right now, that he is a good father, a father unlike any other? That's the first temptation to overcome. The temptation to believe that he's not a good father who disciplines us and tests us for our good. The second temptation that we must overcome is this, this false belief that the goodness of God as father is determined by how things go in your life. That the goodness of God as Father is determined by how things go in your life. We need to decide now that we are going to root out a belief that we might not even realize is underneath the surface of our lives. It's this belief that if I live right, my life should go right. If I live right, if I live well, my life should go right and my life should go well. It makes sense, right? Like it instinctively feels right. 
But it's dangerous because then the opposite is true. If life goes wrong, then I must be wrong. Something is wrong. With me, I must be a failure. I begin to hate myself. Or if life goes wrong, then I hate God because he's not holding up his part of the bargain. If life, if I live right, then surely God, then life should be right. And so when things go wrong in our lives, if we hold on to this premise, and I think most of us do, it's under the surface, isn't it? But if we believe that, that if I live right, then life will be right. When life goes wrong, we have self-hatred or we just hate God. Here's a quote from a long quote. I'm going to quote a book that we're doing in our summer groups called Prayer in the Night by um, an Anglican uh, priest called Tish Harrison Warren. She says this, bear with me. I think it is worth it. I hope it will be. Um, let me read this. My friend Julie, Hunter's wife, is an artist. Her watercolors hang in my kitchen. Years ago, when her son was very young, he had to have surgery. Like any parents whose child is going under the knife, my friends were anxious. Before the nurses wheeled their infant son into the operating room, Julie looked at Hunter, her husband, and said, we have to decide now whether or not God is good. Because if we wait to determine that by the results of this surgery, we will always keep God on trial. If the question of whether God is real or not, or of whether God is kind or, or indifferent, or insert swear word, is discernment by the balance of joy and sorrow in our lives or in the world, we will never be able to say anything about who God is or what God is like. The evidence around us is frankly inconclusive. We cannot hold together human vulnerability and God's trustworthiness at the same time, unless there is some certain sign that God loves us, that he isn't an absentee landlord or worse, a monster. But we cannot divine such a sign from the circumstances of our lives or of the world. We have to decide what we believe about who God is and what he is like. It is unavoidably, even irritatingly, a decision based on doctrine. The first principles we return to again and again, the story we define our lives by. Francis Spufford writes, she continues, we don't have an argument that solves the problem of a cruel world, but we have a story. This is why no matter what we claim to believe or disbelieve, what rises to the surface in our most vulnerable moments is inevitably the story on which we build our lives. End quote. I'm going to come back actually to this quote, so let me just put a bookmark in for just now. I recognize that deciding that is rock hard. But the promise from this passage is this, even in the testing, God provides he provides all that we need. He invites us into this story, a story that says this in Deuteronomy 1, the Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. What are your tests today? Death or illness of, of a parent, chronic inexplicable pain, upcoming crises in, in your life, identity things under the surface. What's testing you that you know that you're failing right now? Well, he carries us. Even when we fail him, will you trust in him? Even when you are failing, there is bread enough for you today. God was forming, transforming, informing, reforming, counterforming something in his people as they picked up this bread each day. It was all so that they would know this, that God provides not just in the rules in, that they were receiving, but himself. 
that God provides more than enough because he gives himself. Let me read from Exodus 16 again, verse 6. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people, at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against him. And then verse 9. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke, the whole congregation um, of Israel, they looked towards the wilderness and behold, the glory of God appeared in the cloud. I don't know what that must have been like, but he appeared in the cloud and the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. It was to provide evidence, to point them to see that God's provision, all of God's provision was this, presence demonstrating provision. Presence demonstrating provision. Through the grumbling, through the testing, through manna and quail, through bread, through rest, they were to receive God himself. That he is the Lord. He is the one who saved them. He wanted them to see his glory. The cloud was to point to his leading. Sabbath was to point to his rest. Quail was to point to his listening. Manna was to point to his provision. We begin to see hints in the story that God provides enough because God gives himself to us. John 6 describes how Jesus feeds 5,000 people with no more than a lunchbox, really, in the wilderness. We're meant to wonder, okay, how, mm, I've, I've heard that before. Jesus had their attention with the bread that satisfied their physical appetite, but then he wants them to see that their spiritual appetite was what had, um, he had come to satisfy. Jesus says this in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And what do they do, the hearers then? They grumble. They grumble. We like physical bread, but bread from heaven? What's that all about? They say, he's the carpenter's son. How can he have come from heaven? And they grumble as they don't realize that this is God's uh, presence demonstrating provision right in front of their eyes. Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread I will give for the life of the world is my own flesh. And so what Jesus is saying is not what is it, but who is it? Jesus could more than multiply the bread. He was the bread, the spiritual bread that came from heaven. Jesus was saying, come to me, trust me, feed on me, draw your life from me. When you take and eat of me, my life pulses through your life. And so to end that quote that I read from before, let me finish uh, with this. When Julie sat in a hospital waiting room as surgeons carved her son's tender skin, she committed herself to deciding whether God could be trusted, regardless of the result of the surgery. She had to decide if she believed these claims that Christianity makes about God's goodness. She quit the poker game, folded her cards, and decided to trust a God who did not guarantee that bad things would not happen to her or her son. But this was not an arbitrary decision, not a leap in the dark. She was not simply ratcheting herself up to affirm the goodness of God in spite of contrary evidence. She did look to the evidence 
though not the evidence in her life, nor the tally of the total amount of good in the world versus the total amount of evil. Instead, she looked to the life of Jesus. It's on this story that she anchored her decision about whether she would trust God without knowing what would happen next. So, brothers and sisters, friends, here's the question. It feels like a holy question. Will you decide right now that God is your father, a good father, that the provision of his grace and love and himself goes beyond what's going on in your life right now, that he is enough? Even when life doesn't look like you'd hoped, that you'd take this assumption that if you live right, that life will be right, that you take it by the roots and refuse to believe its flawed assumptions and pull it right up out of the ground and bring it to this good God who takes it from you and gives you life-giving bread, who gives you himself, who says that he is enough. Through all trials and tests, he is more than enough. His body is the one broken for us. His flesh is given for us. He gives himself to us. So why don't we take a moment now? I'll lead us in prayer in one moment. But what might it look like for you this morning just to come empty-handed and say, Lord, let me eat of this living bread. Let me eat of you.